Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Next up on the show, Hume Abbas. Hume was born and raised in and around Nazareth in a predominantly Arab part of Israel. These days, she mostly lives in Paris. Hume is an actor. She has nearly 100 credits to her name. Artsy indie movies, French TV dramas, Moroccan horror movies. But if you know Hume Abbas from one thing here in the States, I bet it's Succession, the massive TV hit on HBO. Hume plays Marsha, Logan Roy's wife, on a show famous for its craven, manipulative, sometimes frightening characters. Marsha dominates in all three categories. I have fought and I have lost, and I have fought and won. But when I lose, the other one will generally lose an eye or so. Hume is also starring in a new movie called Gaza Mon Amour. It's Palestine's submission to this year's Academy Awards. Gaza Mon Amour is pretty much everything Succession isn't. It's a rom-com. It's slow-paced. It's sweet in some parts, sad and scary in others. In it, Abbas plays Sihem, a widowed tailor living with her adult daughter. She meets Issa, a local fisherman who never married. They start courting each other in fits and starts, missed connections, awkward conversations, brief affectionate glances. And like the title suggests, it's set in Gaza, a Palestinian city beset by conflict. Not your usual rom-com venue. I'm really grateful to Hiam Abbas for joining me from her apartment in Paris, France. Let's get into it. Hiam Abbas, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Were you shooting to do more romantic comedies in your career? <laughs> was that your was that your next goal, more romantic comedy? Maybe, maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I don't know really. I never kind of like calculated things, you know. I just embrace whatever comes. And this one came as a second experience with these guys, like with the Nasser brothers, who. They just became part of my life, really, after the first one. And when they wrote the second one, it was just easy to go for it and easy to work with them and fun to work with them on it. What kind of guys are they? I I saw pictures of them, and it's not what I expected from watching No one film. would expect, anyway. When you talk about people of Gaza, <laughs> I think even people of Gaza would have like a cert- certain image of people there. Uh, what kind of people are they? They're just two beautiful boys, big, hairy, with beards, long hair, uh, black, uh, uh, green eyes with black in their eyes, black makeup. And they're wearing a lot of jewelry. They wear like uh, stylish clothes. So young, full of life, a lot of fun. They're really a lot of fun. And basically for me, they're very, very good directors. So it's very interesting to work with them as twins, you know, because it's just like, who do you listen to, basically? 
it's always the big question. You know, when you meet them in the beginning, it's such a shock. You say, oh, is this is really what it is? And then when you start to know them and you know the difference between them, so you really relate to Arab as Arab and Tarzan as Tarzan, it's interesting to see the dynamic between the twins and the way they work with uh, with actors and they work on the movie together. Did you make the film in Palestine? No, it was shot in Jordan, in Amman, uh, in a refugee camp in the city of Amman, uh, partially. And the sea part was in Portugal. That's why you there there is a Portuguese um, co-production in there. It, what it was like to shoot in Amman, they did their first movie there. So we just had the feel of what it is really to produce and to shoot a movie in Amman. It's never easy in a sense because what happened, it's, they were, they wanted so much the story to be authentic to Gaza that they went to a refugee camp that looked like their refugee camp where they came from and they tried to use like real set, a real shop, you know, where they emptied it out of whatever their content was and they build up the decor. The thing with these guys is just like they like to do things themselves all the time, you know, because they want to make sure that everything they do is exactly what they left behind, you know, because they haven't been in Gaza for like, I think, seven years now and they cannot go back. Uh, and so they really like very keen about being authentic to their own environment, to what they knew, so that the characters could be as authentic as they want them to be. So shooting in a refugee camp, you know, it's really kind of fighting for your right to exist somehow because like everybody around just doesn't know what shooting is like, you know, or they think like cinema has a lot of money. So it's, you know, uh, so it wasn't easy. But because they come from that environment, they had the language, you know, they had the language to communicate with people and to speak with them and to bring them into working with us. So it was tough. Honestly, it was tough. Did you feel like an interloper? Did you feel like a uh, you were inserting yourself into other people's lives? I didn't because when I when I film, I'm just like you know I I'm kind of dressed as the character. So I mean, I don't think I really looked like any different from women there. But sometimes, like I was hot, so I'll take the thing off of my head, you know, and then you know people would look at me like, who is this woman dressed like the bottom side is like like a, a, a traditional woman, but like the head doesn't go with it, you know. But it was fun. You know, they knew. They knew we were shooting a movie and they knew that I'm not dressed like this in their in normal life. So, you know, it takes time for people to accept you. But the, to be honest with you, once you are respectful of their life and the way they are and you just communicate with them, you know. I speak the language, so like I, I'm not I'm not an intruder in a way, you know. Um, so once you do it that way, everything goes really like, with me, it was easy. I just like, like the people there and, you know, I spoke with them. I think for the artistic side, it was more difficult, you know, to keep silence, for example, that was really hard to make people understand that, yeah, you cannot talk whenever you want, you know, so it's, and to have like a green room, for example, you know, what do you mean green room? You know, like. 
what, what does that mean to bring the food at a certain time when we tell them and not when they want to make it you, you know it's educate it's an educational process really in a place where people are not used to that when you started working with these guys who are so assiduous about recreating the place that they came from which they can't physically be in anymore um did they talk to you or did you talk to them about that experience of having to leave home to become an artist? I don't think really we kind of don't connect on that point together because I I kind of went through the same thing, though I don't come really from Gaza itself and I didn't really experience uh, what they experienced, you know, as kids in under the Hamas government or under the Israeli attacks from time to time, you know, because we know that it's every few years, you know, we had to declare a war against Gaza, whatever. Um, but I think, yeah, we relate to to being far away from home. We relate to not seeing our parents for years. We uh, we talk about this. It's hard, but we we kind of live with it, really, because I think... There is no other choice. More with Hiam Abbas in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Do you run a business or manage a team? It's time to switch to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, inventory, manufacturing, sales, accounting, you name it, Odoo's got you covered. So, stop wasting time and start getting stuff done with Odoo. For a free trial, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Hiam Abbas. She's a veteran actor from Palestine. She plays Marsha on HBO's Succession. She's appeared on Hulu's Rami and in the movies Munich and Blade Runner 2049. Her latest film is Gaza Mon Amour. It's a love story and Palestine's entry to this year's Academy Awards. Let's get back into our conversation. I was thinking about the fact that you're from Nazareth and, you know, I think to many Americans, Nazareth might as well be Sherwood Forest or some other place from a story. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to imagine it as a as a real place that exists in the real world right now. And I wonder if you could describe what the town was like when when you were a kid. This is something I kind of like encounter in my life often when I say that I was born in Nazareth. It's people look at me as, as if I was holy myself, you know because of the religious, historical religious background of Nazareth, the city used to be a very beautiful city uh, with specific monuments, religious monuments, really, that venues or churches or mosques or whatever that co-lived very well with each other. I knew it when I was young, and it was a much smaller place than it is now. So now you have what they call Nazareth Elite, which is the highest Nazareth, which is on top. And normally this city 
was the city where Jewish families lived, you know, Israeli Jews came into that place. And the downtown Nazareth stayed like the Palestinian side of the city. But like it got so, it's it's so different now. Uh, the old city is kind of like really almost struggling to exist. Uh, and within the, the 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 buildings and the changes that happened around it. So it's for me, it's a place where even history has suffocated. You know, it's so different and so not what it used to be for me that I have hard time relating to it. To it. By the way, I just came back from my village as well, where I grew up, which a village called Derhanna, which is north of Nazareth. And the same thing, I just like, every day I woke up, I was like in a shock of how quickly like the modern times take over and kill every single memory of you as a child. So there is no relation to anything that you knew before, really. When you were a kid, uh, did you know mostly Palestinian Israelis or did you regularly interact with people from other cultural backgrounds, Jewish Israelis and so forth? It's only only Palestinians from Israel because I grew up in that village that was only from like Palestinians and from Israel, uh, divided between Christians and Muslims. But at that time, we never really talked about religion. We just like very well lived together. No conflict whatsoever. There's a mosque. There's a church. My best friends were the kids of the priest of my village. He was the best friend of my father. So that's really how I grew up. But everything else administration-wise happened elsewhere. And this elsewhere was the nearest city to our, to my village, which which was Akko, Akka in Arabic. And this is where, when I used to go to the village, I would go there and this is where I would suddenly would have to speak Hebrew in order to get whatever I needed. So this is where you kind of meet Jews, Israeli Jews, for the first time in your life. You know, once you need a doctor or you need to go for any administrative thing. But like the school happened in Arabic. Everything was around me was Arabic, really. So we used to go like do our shopping for clothing and things like bigger than just food, either in Nazareth, but Nazareth, everybody spoke Arabic at that time, or in Akka, which was a mixed city between Palestinians who spoke Arabic and Jews who spoke Hebrew. Did you have family or family friends elsewhere in the world? Your parents were first-generation immigrants. My father was from the same village, so he always lived there. My mother comes from a family that was in Tiberiad, Tiberius, the city of Tiberius. In 48, they had to quit with the exod of Palestinians. And my grandfather basically did not want to cross the border because he felt that if he did, he would never come back. So they've hidden under a tree for a night or two. And then they try to go backwards. So they ended up in a village not very far from Tiberius at the time. And this is where they just lived. My grandfather went to see what happened to his house, never found 
the key for it. Never was able to come into it be, because it was already occupied by a Jewish family. So he just like went crazy, lost his mind and died two years after, I think. And then my grandmother had to bring up nine kids, you know, at that time. Uh, it's painful. Honestly, like when you hear these stories, it's very painful. But I I appreciated a lot my grandmother for one reason. It's like she educated my mom to pardon. My mom educated me to pardon. And I think both women just influenced my life in a big, big, big way. You know, where just like let's go with the flu and just like see how we get the best of our life with whatever drama we had to live. At what point do you think you decided that you were going to, you know, get out of town, so to speak? How old were you? I think you? very early. I think very early. I think at the age of 15, I already was dreaming of some kind of freedom that existed somewhere else. But I didn't know where it existed, really. I think I saw my future somewhere else. But I didn't know, really, at that age. At that age, I couldn't give it any explanation because even, you know, I mean, when you grew up in a village, though my parents both were teachers and they were just educated people, it was easy to talk with them. Their goal was to educate us. So we had to be educated, basically, as they were. So the mo the most important thing was studying. So I had to choose something to study. But I didn't want to study what they wanted me to study, so I went to study photography. Yeah, did they expect you to do something practical? Like, did they expect you to become a doctor or a lawyer or an undertaker? Absolutely, yeah. Doctor or a lawyer, that was the thing, really. Or a teacher, because it's a good job for a woman, because she could just, like, work half day and go back home and have her kids and, you know, bring them up in a, the right way. I mean, though my parents were very educated, they were still like traditional people in a way, you know, because they were living in these traditions. So they were kind of like trying to respect things to a certain limit where people would not uh, make of them, make fun of them or just like talk about them in a bad way in the village. So that this is what we what I kept hearing all the time. And I kept fighting back saying that no one would decide anything for me. It's like, I have to decide for myself. So it wasn't easy, but I really dreamt of, of a different life. Again, at that time, I didn't know what it was. The dream was just some idea that had no, that had no description to it. Like, I didn't know what kind of life I would have, what kind of job I would have, what kind of woman I would be. I didn't. What was the first thing you did that was concrete? What was the first step you took towards that? Learning photography, studying, and then um, acting, acting in school. It's something, every, every artistic activity that we had in school, I had to be part of it. That was my space of freedom as well, you know, like... I understood when I was acting or when I was singing or when I was, you know, um, playing the drums, whatever. This was a space that belonged to me. So no one could penetrate that space. It was mine. And I could exist in it in a very free way. What kind of acting were you doing in school? Just like, I mean, 
Oklahoma? I mean, we were doing all different kinds, really. But the one that sticks to my mind a lot is the one that made me believe that I could make something through this job is I was very young. I was like, I think I was nine or 10, really. And I was acting this woman, mother, who had her child dying. And the child was almost as big as I was. But he was still like in my in my hands. I was sitting down. He was lying on me. And and of course, like in the I cannot remember exactly the scene. The only thing I remember that I cried the death of my kid. And once we finished and we just like, you know, went to bow in front of the the audience that were people in my village that I knew and people from my school and my teachers, I saw everybody crying. And I said, wow, this is like magical, right? There's something to discover there. There's something really incredible, influential in a way, you know, like something passing on from me to the others. And that was really an incredible feeling. I think this is something that followed my childhood for so many years after that I just didn't know what to do with at that time. And once I finished my photography school and started working in photos, like as, as, as a photographer, I discovered a theater that I suddenly belonged to with too. And this is how I really became a professional actor. Did you go to photography school because you aspired to be a photographer or simply because it was a way to make art that was in front of you, available to you? Are you like, do you read minds or what? Because like every time you ask me a question, it's incredible. I swear to you. It's like, this is the third time I said like, does he know the answer or what? Uh, yeah, no, it is incredible. Amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. What you said is true. I went to, to a photography school to escape really. And to just like a form of art would have made out of me who I am now. Otherwise, I would have kind of like died doing something different in my life that I didn't like. So it was for me just like a way to tell my parents basically that I didn't go to a photography school because I knew anything about photo. Like I went there because I, my sister was doing another, uh, she was studying another subject in that same school. And one day, because she knew me, she goes, she had already started school, and she goes, uh, I think you must come here and see. I think there is a, a photography school here, if you're interested. I say, okay, you know, talk to the to them, try to find if I can have an appointment. So she speaks to the director, and apparently I get that appointment. I just had to tell my parents that I had to go. So I told my parents that I'm going to see the school where my sister is, so to make it easier on them, I said, you know, my sister is there, so we'll be together. You know, you shouldn't worry. We will just kind of stand up for each other, blah, 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 you know. And they, my father said, like, okay, so what, what photography, like, what is it? Is, it? is this a job? Like, what are you going to do with it? I said, I really don't know, but I think I need to go and discover it. So I went there and I spoke with the with the director 
the they had already finished really their inscriptions, you know, like they wouldn't take anybody else. But I just like stood in front of this man and I said, it's a matter of death or life, right? It's either you take me to your school and you save me forever or you let me die being a doctor or a lawyer or whatsoever. So he was so intrigued that basically he said, okay, go on, you know, we'll take you. So he added me to the list of students and I went back home and I told my parents that I this is what I was going to do. It wasn't easy, but finally I I just did it. And yeah, it was really for me a way to to escape a different life and to stay connected to art. The thing about photography in this context is it is both an art form and a trade. Like it is a it's a job job in addition to being something you do for fine art. And it also is, you know, as far as the arts goes, it's about as technical as it gets. Like it's about as close to being a scientist as uh, you can be, you know, maybe architect or draftsman or something like that. But it's like a job job. <laughs> it's a job it you is. could sell to your parents. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. It is. But to be honest with you, I did that job for a few years after I finished school, while I was in school. And after, in order to pay my school, I had to do like weddings, you know. And and then I did uh, journalism, like, and then I went to work in univer the Birzeit University as a photographer to document all the events that are happening around there. And I hated it. It's just like for me, it's not a job. For me, it wasn't a job, really. For me, it was just like a form of art that I had to perform, but I didn't know how. So that's why I left it and I went to to acting and... Just through acting, I discovered that it was a great thing to learn because it helped me suddenly, you know, achieve my my goal in cinema. Because what is more than acting and photography makes a film, you know. So this is how the two parts connected with each other later in my life after I finished with the theater. What led you out of the country? Suffocating. Having to prove... To everybody, your difference every single minute of your life. If you're a Palestinian, you have to prove to Palestinians why you are different, why you cannot be just like everybody else. And to Israelis, you're not enough of an Israeli. So, like, you know, uh, it's and, and the political issue uh, to add to it. I think really it was about me going to find myself somewhere else and maybe breathing a new air and I never really felt like that I felt I left to leave forever I left because I needed to breathe I needed a new air I need needed to find myself uh doing s something different I had a feeling that I just like uh, the round was done you know the turn had I've, I've, I've took the turn and that's it I I felt I had nothing else really to kind of uh, go for. And I just wanted to go to a country where, yes, I didn't have to tell everybody who I was and why I am who I am every every minute of my life, you know. And, you know, with my parents, with my village, with the people of my village, with my society, it wasn't easy to be... Who I was, really, you know. I mean, being an actress in Palestine at that time, 
wasn't something that you wouldn't find. I think maybe we were two or three at the max, you know. So while a lot of men were actors around us. So it wasn't, especially coming from a village, you know, with a, a very kind of like limited possibility of people to know what it is. You know, it felt like it's a discipline that people didn't know that it was possible for a woman to to be or to become. At the time when I decided to leave, it's because I couldn't cope with all the component of of the society and the politics around, you know, and the division between Palestinians and Israelis. And I mean, it's it was too hard to cope with. And I just went to London, basically. I went to London and I stayed there. And then I went back just three years after. So for three years, I decided to kind of like find myself really. Did you always intend to be... Uh an international cinema actor? Or uh, was your thinking that you would just, you would be glad to do regional theater or, or wh whatever it was? I don't think I never intended really anything. I just like knew that I loved acting once I started to act as a theater actress. When I moved out of the country, I thought I would continue working as a theater actress. I, But I didn't know where I would work, you know, because in London, I basically joined uh, the group of Hakawati that I started to work with in Jerusalem. They were in a tour and I kind of like worked with them again. And when I came to Paris, I didn't speak the language, so I didn't know where I'm going with it, you know. Um, but slowly, like I started to to work on the language and slowly I started to kind of like some people wanted to do small movies with me and this is how I drew the picture really but I never intended anything I just followed the stream and I continued to choose things that I would connect with later on when I had the possibility of course and things came up you know I don't know really if I if I had to choose them or if they choose me. I. It's a mixture of things. We'll finish up with Hima Bas after a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about how she got the role of Marsha on Succession and whether or not she thinks Marsha actually loves her husband, Logan Roy. Yes, folks, Succession Intrigue. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Airbnb. Millions of people earn extra income by hosting their extra space on Airbnb. Income that can help with home renovations, paying for vacations, or saving for retirement. Maybe you have questions about whether hosting might be right for you? You can now ask a super host and get free one-on-one -on -one help from Airbnb's most experienced hosts. Go to airbnb.com slash askasuperhost and start asking. Hi, I'm Joe Firestone. And I'm Manolo Moreno. And we host After Game Show, a podcast where listeners submit games and we play them regardless of quality with a dozen listeners from around the world. We've had folks call in from as far as Sweden, South Africa, and the Philippines. Here's an example. This is a game we called Zooey Deschanel, 
where you turn a celebrity's name into an animal pun. You have an example, Manolo? Brad Gorilla Pit. Oh, that's a pun on Gorilla Pit? Yep. I don't know. If that's, that's Brad Pitt. Oh, okay. That's a high-quality game that you yeah. could expect. Dr. Game Show has new episodes every other Wednesday on Maximum Fun. Check us out, please. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here with me is Hiam Abbas. She plays Marsha on HBO's Succession. She also stars in the new movie, Gaza Mon Amour. I was thinking about your part in Succession, and you play the wife of the patriarch of the family that the show is about. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of times, I, I read a lot of people describing your character as like enigmatic or mysterious or something. And the thing that struck me about watching your character on screen was in this world where all these kids are trying to figure out how they belong. Like they, like it's, they're constantly juggling amongst each other and looking some combination of fake confident and scared. Your, your character is like the one character on the show who uh, is able to project that she belongs where she stands. Exactly, yeah. Kindle. Hey, Marsha. Ça va? How was your trip? It was good. It was fine. No accidents, no hiccups. Uh, no, no hiccups. You say you've been through difficult times. Nice boy. But out of difficult times come strong men. Right? And I thought, like, well, here, here you are, traveling from country to country, uh, working in, <laughs> working in movies that are being made all over the world by people from all over the world, and so on and so forth. And like the skill that you must have had to develop was looking like you belong in the, in the place you're standing. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. You're really right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never really put it that way, but I think, yeah, it's very interesting to hear you describe it that way. So maybe that's the connection between Marsha and myself. Do you feel like you belong in all those places or, or are you faking it? I do. You're a good I actor, do. so either one. Thank you very much for the good actor, but yeah, no, I do. I really do. Uh, you know, there is something that I find very interesting about acting in that sense because, like, yeah, you travel through countries, you travel through sets with different cultures, different people, different languages. You use your body in a different way as well. But every time, every time, it's home. That's really what I find interesting about it. Every single time, it's really home. Nothing seems very strange. Nothing seems awkward, you know. Marsha is home. So every character on Succession is pretty craven. And, you know, you're that, you're that patriarch played by Brian Cox's third wife, right? Yeah. When you, when you got that part, when you started getting scripts in the mail or, or by courier or email or whatever, did you have to choose, are you actually in love with him? Or did you ask Hey, am I actually in love with him? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, succession came to me because they offered me the pilot. 
So in the pilot, Marsha was not very, very developed, really. It's just like all the others almost existed in the conflict of the succession. Uh, Logan Roy was going to have that accident, um, that like a heart attack or whatever he had, and be in the hospital. And Marsha was supposed to kind of be there next to him. Uh, whatever was written in the pilot, I tried to do it with Adam McKay, who was very open, and Jesse Armstrong, the writer, who both creators, well, who both were very open to suggestions at that time. And I think they loved whatever went with the, like came out from the actors, but went in the direction of the characters that they imagined drawing at that time. When we were picked up and I started reading, I had no doubt that I love my husband. Marsha loves her husband and her husband loves her. It's more with the time, more with the time discovering how horrible these characters are. I asked myself, like, what is she doing with him, right? So I went and I had to speak with Jesse and I said, like, what exactly, like, how do you see her as a writer, creator? You know, like, where does she stand from there? And I think we both agreed that, yeah, there is love. There is love there, you know. But their love is, like, the word love for them comes from a different dictionary as it is for us, really, I think. You know, love for them is more, it's like, you know, when, when Shiv tells Tom or Tom tells Shiv, I mean, yeah, Shiv, sorry. I love you. You know, you say like, this couple, like, do they really love each other? Or they just like have that act in order to whatever, you know? Um, and the same with the Marsha and, and Logan. I think, I think she loves him and she loved him because I think she found somehow a safety statue, you know, in life where she can stick to. And I think for him, it was a great deal as well. So they, they, they kind of like, yeah, um, existed in that, in that love relationship that is really very proper to these kind of mentalities and these kind of people with that kind of, you know, social financial statue somehow that doesn't belong. We don't belong to that. You know, I mean, I don't know what what is that really, apart from imagination, as he am, you know. I sometimes think about why movie stars marry each other so much. Um, and I don't think they marry each other so much, you know, absolutely. Like, I, I don't think more than half of movie stars are married to another movie star. But a lot more movie stars are married to movie stars than regular people are married to movie stars. And... <laughs> Like, there's this thing that I feel like it must be like, I mean, I'm projecting, obviously, but like part of it is, well, I can relate to their experience. They can relate to my experience, but also just as with Logan Roy, the the patriarch of this family, who's rich beyond imagining, it's like, here's this other person who is all also has their thing, like doesn't need to take my thing. And so I don't have to worry about whether that's what's going on. Uh, and there's something about that in 
both directions bilaterally in Marsha's relationship with Logan, like that each of those people is comforted by the fact that this other person is so themselves and has their own thing going. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a deal, you know? It's really like a deal that they just like uh, agreed upon, you know? I think in the beginning when they met, if I would imagine a past, like a history, uh, I think they loved each other. They made love, you know, like every like couple that meets in the beginning. But then I think in within the 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 way Logan Roy kind of deals with his life and the way Marsha wants to live her life, they made a deal, you know, keep the spaces separate, but at the same time, you know, work together in order to keep the appearance to people and 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 interiorly they just like each was in his own kingdom somehow. But that that doesn't preclude love or affection, right? Like that doesn't exactly. mean that they, yeah. Yeah. That's why I think they really love each other. Yeah. You're talking to me from Paris right now. You've lived there quite a long time. Does it feel like home to you? Yes, it is. I mean, it's over 30 years now. I came to Paris in 89. So can you imagine? It is. It is. I like it. I really like Paris. I like the history of Paris. I like I like people. I like... Uh, life is easy here somehow. It's very cultural. I like it. It's very mixed. I like it. I, I can see a lot of things that I cannot see in other places, but in Paris, you know, movie-wise, uh, ex- exhibitions, uh, uh, books. Like, I can buy books in English. I can buy books in Hebrew if I want. I can buy books in Arabic, French, of course. Yeah, no, I li- I really like it. And it's home for my kids as well. So that's another connection. Do you still think in Arabic? Not much, no. I think in Arabic, I think when I act in Arabic, when I'm supposed to do a a, a, a show or a film in Arabic, but not in daily life, very little. Is it French in there? I, I think a lot in English and French. English is very, very present in my life. And French, of course, yeah, well, because I, I live here, so my... My quotidian life is is French. Well, I, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so nice to get to talk to you. I, I admire your work so much. Thank you so much. It's really nice. Hiyama Boss. Her newest movie is called Gaza Mon Amour. You can rent it right now on pretty much any video on demand platform. It's a beautiful and uh, funny. It's really a great movie. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. We were in our office on MacArthur Park in Los Angeles this week, and uh, all of the dirt in MacArthur Park is covered with something white. I don't know what it is. 
Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffitt. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Thanks to independent producer Rebecca Roseman for recording He Am a Boss in her apartment in Paris, and to Mike Mills for getting vaccinated and coming in to see us in our studio. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that great tune. You can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 